As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It's week four now into the college football season. Hard to believe. Feels like it just started still. Um, Bruce, something I've been kicking around, I've said it, I feel like, in three different outlets already, but um, I, and I got to give credit to Ralph Russo, who, whose tweet kind of um, on Saturday night. You know, he had the combined scores of basically six teams on Saturday. Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio State, and LSU. It was some obscene margin. As I went to do my new top ten on late Saturday night, I felt like, man, I've got six teams here, and I don't feel right leaving two of them out of the top four. Like, they all look like playoff teams right now. And then I don't really have any strong feelings about anybody else. Does it feel that way to you that there's... This, and I know it's only three weeks in, but that there's just kind of this separation right now of tiers in college football. Well, I think it's better than if you, you know, if we normally have four teams, right? I, I feel like the the pool has expanded just a little bit. Uh, I think one thing that that kind of dovetails into this to me is the ACC looks so bad right now, and Clemson looks so good. It's hard to imagine anybody, including in the conference title game, getting in their way. And so that, let's put them aside. Then you have what looks like a really strong top three in the in the SEC. And I don't know. I mean, you, you did your top 10. I mean, what percent chance would you give it right now that we could have three SEC teams make the playoff? Oh, I'm not going to go there. I don't think that's... Oh, go there. Come on. You're already, you're already talking about how there's only six teams that matter. You think it's very low? Yeah, but three of them are going to play play a little mini playoff amongst each other. Okay, so let's talk about your original power six here, Stu. So it's those three SEC teams. It is Ohio State, who has looked very impressive on both sides of the ball, albeit haven't really played anybody very, very good. I think Cincinnati's pretty good, but beyond that, I we have to see. Uh, and then I know you're obviously putting in Clemson, and then you're putting in the team I just saw this weekend, Oklahoma. So here's here's where I get back to the, the potential, and I think a lot of people are probably throwing up when they think about this. 
of possibly three SEC teams, especially with LSU holding a, an impressive road win at Texas, which, by the way, is in the Big 12, and Texas is, you know, in all likelihood, again, I don't want to get too presumptuous, but it wouldn't shock me if they're going to get two cracks at Oklahoma this year. So that's why I see it not being that far-fetched that we could get three SEC teams. I think it's completely far-fetched. Um, and you know, Explain why, well, But first of all, I mean, it's funny that you're going here because I just, for the first time, since you know, I, I did my first bowl projections in the preseason, and then I do a new New Year's Six one every week, this is the first time that I don't have two SEC teams. Uh, I took Alabama out. I put Ohio State in. To have three... Two, much less three SEC teams, you need the other power conferences to cannibalize themselves so that it's, you know, SEC team that didn't win its 11 and 1 or 12 and 1 SEC team that didn't win its conference championship game going against 11 and 2 Big Ten champion or 11 and 2 Big 12 champion. And my takeaway so far is I don't see Ohio State losing two games, I don't see Oklahoma losing two games. Um, the biggest questions I had about Ohio State, and look, it hasn't been the greatest competition, but Indiana has given them troubles in the past, and it's a road game in conference. It crushed them, and I think what's most encouraging about Ohio State so far, yeah, you, you see what Justin Fields is doing, but they had trouble last year running the ball a little bit. J.K. Dobbins ran for almost 200 yards in that game, and we know they really struggled on defense last year. They have gone from... Three games and they've gone from 79th in the country in rushing defense to number four. Uh, it seems like the change at D.C. there has had a transformation. So I'm kind of more focused on that right now than I am this Alabama, Georgia, LSU um, traffic jam that we're seeing at the top of the SEC. Well, to use a journalism phrase, you buried the lead a little bit there. You said, if I didn't, if I heard you right, You've punted on Alabama. What gives? Well, we're just nitpicking right now. Like I said, you could make an argument for any of those six to be in the playoff. You could make an argument, I think, for any— I, Clemson's going to be in it. I think you could make an argument, well, okay, if I'm going to take— two of these teams can't make it, here's why. Um, watch the Alabama-South— Who is beating, who is beating Alabama? Well, I watched the Alabama-South Carolina team, game, and even though Alabama won 47-23, to and in fact it was 47-16 until— right at the end. I actually saw an Alabama team that looks more mortal to me than they have in some time. Um, South Carolina was able to move the ball on them pretty well, and then they had a couple, you know, got to fourth and goal and couldn't punch it in, or there was that weird replay situation at the end of the first half. I believe Aaron Suttles, Aaron Suttles did, our Alabama writer, did, did a really good job um, kind of breaking it down. I believe they had, South Carolina had 20 plays of 10 yards or more, it's nothing all that surprising when you lose your two starting inside linebackers, including an All-American and Dylan Moses, and replace them with freshmen. You may have some kinks to work out, and I feel like they do. Uh, they could work them out. They have time to work them out. They could be in great shape by the time they play LSU. But look, i got to base it on the first three games. In the first three games, I think that uh, Georgia, Clemson, Georgia, um, Ohio State, certainly Oklahoma, who I want to get your thoughts on, uh, have looked like more complete teams. So that's where we're at. That's pretty bold, Stu. Um, I'm going to disagree with you just because I think they have, they have plenty of time. 
They don't get LSU or Auburn until November, that, and they get LSU in Tuscaloosa, not Baton Rouge, which is a much more conducive environment for a team playing very young defensive players who will have more seasoning by then. So, look, if you want to nitpick, I would say if I was an LSU fan, I'd be a little concerned about their pass rush. Hasn't been that great, and they're going to face an offense that is really scary, and it's still scary. And as long as you got two on those receivers— Mm, I'm not picking against them. I'm not ready to go there. I mean, LSU... You are, you, you're clearly ready to go there. You've already punted Alabama and Nick Saban to the curb. Well, no, I haven't. Uh, well, yes. It's not I've, about I've, LSU. I've, it's about Georgia. And, and look, we'll find out more about them Saturday night against Notre Dame. It's, you know, if Georgia and Alabama got to the SEC championship game, as we think they probably will, um, based on what I've seen so far, I would pick Georgia. And then... It's okay. Is Alabama going to get its annual exemption into the playoff, or is Ohio State going to be sitting there at twelve and one? Is Oklahoma going to be sitting there at twelve and one? Because I think the committee would go with the conference champion. But we're looking way down the road. Yes, we um, are. I, I'm fascinated by Jalen Hurts. I've been fascinated by Jalen Hurts for eight months uh, to see what he would look like at Oklahoma, and he's blown away my wildest imagination of what he could do in the Oklahoma offense. He's actually doing things that even Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray didn't on the first drive of the game that you had the other night. He, he, he himself ran for all 99 yards of that drive. Um, so obviously we're, we're getting all excited. He's the number one player in our week three Heisman straw poll. Obviously that's the kiss of death to be the September Heisman winner. So, don't read too much into that, but you know, what in your opinion is he that good? Or are they that good? Or is it UCLA is that bad? Houston defense certainly that bad. If they're going to come to back to earth at some point, I think he is that good, and that offense is that dangerous. And here, here's the stuff that kind of wows you when you see it at field level. Uh, first of all, and this is from talking to some people inside the Alabama, the Oklahoma program. Freudian slip there, uh, that this is probably the as deep a collection of skill talent as they've had in a long time. Now, obviously, they've had an Adrian Peterson here and a D.D. Westbrook and, and some really talented guys in different places, but it is a really, really deep group of receivers. I mean, they are, they are terrific from like one to nine. Uh, they're running backs. They have three, three legit running backs who they can rely on. The center, Creed Humphrey, is an All-American. And the, the young offensive line has really kind of come together pretty well. I think what is different here, and look, I'm going to write a story uh, later this week on the Oklahoma run game and why it's pretty devastating and what they do and what makes it really unique and what Bill Biedenboe, who's the run game coordinator and working with, with Lincoln Riley, what they've created there in Norman. And what's really interesting is when Lincoln got hired there from East Carolina as the OC, and this is back under Bob Stoops, a lot of people wondered, well, he's an air raid guy. You got to run the ball there. Well, they run the heck out of the ball there and they're really efficient at it. And what's different now, because obviously, you know, Baker's a really good athlete. And if he saw defensive backs turning, he was going to scoot and take off. Kyler's crazy fast, but he wasn't really breaking tackles. Now you have this guy who's also very fast in Jalen Hurts, but he is like a tailback in terms of physicality. Uh, when, you, when you see him in person, he's a thick, strong dude. I mean, the stuff that those videos you may have seen on, 
on Twitter about him squatting and, and power cleaning. I mean, that translates onto the field. And so in that first drive against UCLA, UCLA has a really good linebacker, 14, Chris Barnes. He's one of the best linebackers on the West Coast. And, and Jalen Hurts just made him look silly at one point. And I think that was kind of a soul-crushing moment for the UCLA defense right out of the gate. And he had them back on their heels. They could not contain him. I talked to Chip Kelly right at the start of the third quarter, right before the start of the third quarter, and he was just like, we're spying on We have a spy on him, and the spy can't get him to the ground. you got to find a way to keep him in the pocket. And then there were some throws he made that were so right on the money because their guys are going to run free because there is such a threat in the run game with him. So in that part, I think he's an ideal fit. On the on the off-the-field stuff, it's very interesting. I, I talked to Jalen Hurts last Monday, you know, about four days before, five days before the game. And I have a, I don't say I know him very well, but I had been around him some at the Elite 11 when he was a counselor, so I know him a little bit. And man, he has got a burning desire to lead this team to a national title game in a way that is different from almost uh, anybody else because I think of some of that history he has. And he's said mostly a lot of, you know, the right things and, and not said anything that is going to give anybody fodder or anything like that. But there is there is an edge to him that's there. And it's it's just like right beneath the surface. And so a couple of things really, you know, kind of caught my ear when you talk to him. Because in this game, by the way, he became the first OU quarterback to ever throw for 200 and run for 100 yards in a first half. And obviously there's been some great Oklahoma quarterbacks, including the last two. And he's non-plussed by any of the stuff that he is doing right now. It's almost like, you know, this thing we've joked about is Miami back. We won't know until they throw a parade. It's like, can we be impressed by what you're doing, Jalen? Without reading between the lines, you can be impressed after I lead us to a national title. Then we're good. And beyond that, I think it's just it's just full speed ahead and let's keep getting better. And talking to Lincoln Riley about him, because obviously Lincoln had the last two Heisman Trophy winners, he, I asked him about the personalities, because all three are very different. And he said, obviously Baker, and you can tell this, is the most boisterous and and rah-rah in his own way. And Kyler was was very different from that. In this regard, Jalen Hurts is probably closer to Kyler Murray, but there's there's a real presence to Jalen Hurts, son of a coach. You know, he's obviously been through it, and it's going to be a fascinating subplot. And I think the more time people spend a, spend around him, and also the more the country sees Jalen Hurts in this offense, I think the more interesting it's going to get. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think he's very driven, obviously, by coming up he came up short in the national title game as a freshman starter then he didn't really he gets benched and he was not the one to lead Alabama to that national title in 2017 so I could totally see why that's driving him as much as it is I also think that when when people talked about you know how's he going to do in this offense you know our last memories of him as the full-time starter was that he was not an effective downfield passer and so well how much better has he gotten as a passer We'll see, and I think maybe people forgot just what a dangerous runner he is, and how this offense is, I think, much better um, equipped to take advantage of his running ability than Alabama's was. 
I mean, if anything, Alabama, do you remember uh, the spring game? I can't remember if it was his last spring game or the one before it, where Herb Street and Galloway are on the field with, with um, Saban, and the Mike accidentally catches him, basically, his frustrated with Jalen for talking and running it again. Like, he's been in the system for this long, and he's still not you know, going through his progressions. In Oklahoma, I feel like Lincoln Riley's offense is – Sure, go ahead. Take off and run. You know, we've got this amazing offensive line. You're going to have 15, 20 yards of grass to in front of you. Um, I thought your colleague, Brock Huard, did a, a really good job illustrating just how physically overpowering that offensive line was against UCLA in the running game. I don't know about the passing game just because when he takes off and runs like that, is it because they're giving up pressure? It's hard to say, but... In the run game, they're pretty powerful. It's, they yeah. can't get him. I mean, it's like they flush him to one side, and he evades a bunch of guys, and he extends plays. And I think because he's such a strong runner, I mean, the stuff he did, I mean, they had a couple of situations where they can get off the field on, th- on third and long, and then they're, 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 you may see them get some of their offense going. Well, it didn't happen because he makes big plays and extends the third and longs, and I think that's the stuff that's really backbreaking. Stu, I want to re- I want to read you a, a quote from uh, something he told me, and it was, kind of gets into this temperament thing. And so this is this was actually in regard to a question that I had asked him about how much, if at all, has he changed his mechanics this off season, and he said. You got to understand that I'm not the same player that I was as an 18-year-old freshman that started for the best school in the country or as a sophomore. Then as a junior, I was probably one of the best quarterbacks in the country not being able to play. But now I'm in this position and I'm going to take advantage of it. It's just like that is the mission statement more than, okay, you know, you want to talk about this? No, this is what I'm talking about. And I think he's he is as focused on eye on the prize as anybody in college football that I can remember. And, you know, a lot of times I feel like my default is to even reference somebody who's like, yeah, this kid is this or whatever. There's no this kid with Jalen Hurts. Like, he comes across like he's 35, and he's very focused. And, and uh, like I said, I'm fascinated to, to watch him in, in Oklahoma this year after spending a little time around him. So the only thing I'd be concerned about if I'm Oklahoma has nothing to do with Jalen Hurts or their own team, but that the Big 12... Uh, maybe a little bit deeper and stronger than we expected this year. They had a really good weekend, save for Texas Tech laying an egg uh, in that night game at Arizona, and especially the state of Kansas. So let's talk for a second about our guy, Les Miles. And I say our guy. the most vocal, very, very cr- vocal, <laughs> yeah. uh, at, what do we call him? antagonist of Kansas hiring Les Miles. How did you feel when, it wasn't just they went into Chestnut Hill, they crushed BC. Oh, it was... And remember, just the week before, six days before, they lost at home to Coastal Carolina 12-7. to So to go from that to... And I know this is the ultimate example of every week is a new season in college football. To go from that to absolutely hammering BC. BC's, you know, not great, but they've been to a bowl game, I think, four or five straight years. Um, we're not that far removed from game day going there for the Clemson game last year. What a, I mean, not to get on a tangent here, but what a awful, awful loss for Steve Adazio, who I wouldn't say he's been on the hot seat. He's been on the warm seat for a couple of years, and that was just um, humiliating. They ran it down their throats. Um, yeah, that was a great, great win for Les. Um, 
I mean, you know, it's, it's always hard to say with those kind of out of nowhere performances like that, if it was a sign of things to come or an outlier, um, BC looked like they had never tackled. So put your prognosticator hat on. Do you think it's a sign of things? To I think come? it's a sign that they're certainly going to be more competitive than they have been recently in the Big Twelve. I mean, if you can do that to BC, why can't you do? You could certainly do something like that to uh, Texas Tech or uh, I don't know West Virginia. Who? But they had a nice win this weekend. Kansas State, Chris Kleiman, they go on the road uh, and win in Starkville against Mississippi State. Um, you know, I think that conference is turning out to be deeper than we would have expected. And, you know, Iowa State lost to Iowa, but their defense wasn't because their I mean, their defense looked the way we thought it would. I think that might be one of the tougher games Oklahoma plays this year. Oh, and Oklahoma State, who plays the big game at Texas this week, uh, who I visited in the spring and, and did the profile on Sean Gleason. Guess what? Right now they have the number one running back in the country in uh, Chuba Hubbard and the number one receiver in the country in Tylen Wallace. So... Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily expect Oklahoma or anybody else to run away with that conference. Yeah. Okay. So can we talk a little bit? Go back to the ACC, and you mentioned West Virginia. I mean, that's a rough loss for NC State, given how bad West Virginia had looked before that. BC. It's not, it's a it's going to be a tricky situation for for Steve Adazio losing this game. He has a lot of support from the administration. I'm not sure where his AD Martin Jarman feels about this going forward because I think if you're seven and six at BC even though you know 15 years ago and more than that they were consistently a little better than that but I think they're not expecting to put up top 25 seasons regularly but uh, this was a a sharp left turn into what feels like nothingness Uh, the rest of the league just just feels so mediocre right now I don't think that like right now, there is to me, there's the big four conferences. Then there's the ACC with Clemson, which is obviously a great team. I can't, you know, say the ACC is competitive with that because Clemson is such a powerhouse. But I don't remember a team, a conference being this bad outside of one team. Can you? It's a good thing the ACC network that ESPN's already managed to get them on most um, cable and satellite providers. Because I can't imagine a lot of ACC football fans are going to be uh, calling up and trying to cancel their cable service right now. If anything, they're probably relieved not to have to watch all of their games. Uh, it's it's bad. There, there's no way around it. And, you know, it's interesting. It shows you how obsessed we are with the national championship and with, in the playoff because, I mean, what have we been for the last year or more? It's all been about the Pac-12s, you know, dreary state and existential crisis and all that. I mean, every week it's it's self-defeating Pac-12 fans or critics of Larry Scott. The ACC is much worse, but they happen to have the number one team in the country, the defending national champions. The Pac-12 has, by the way, the Pac-12 has six top 25 teams. And, and the ACC has two, right? Two? Is ACC Virginia, I mean, other than Clemson, it's just Virginia, right? Yeah, Virginia and Virginia and Clemson. The only other team I've been moderately impressed with is Wake Forest. Uh, I watched their game against UNC. I think that quarterback's really good, and they've got a uh, really creative offense, but they're not. I mean, let's let's be clear. Like, maybe Wake Forest will be a low top 25 team at some point here soon. They're not LSU you know, they're not the teams that, that the SEC contenders are going to have to play or the Big Ten contenders are going to have to play. 
I was trying to kind of unwind it. I was thinking about this last night. Like, how did it get here? Because I remember very clearly 2016 season, the year Clemson won its first national title. I wrote it. Everybody wrote it that that year the ACC was the best conference in college football. Like every, you know, their their non-conference record, their bowl record, um, the 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 Sagarin rate. Like every metric showed that to be the case. And that was the year that not only did Clemson win the national title, that was the year Lamar Jackson won the Heisman, and Louisville was really good up until the last couple of games of the season. Florida State was still mostly Florida State. They beat Michigan in the Orange Bowl that year. Um, Miami had just, it was Mark Rick's first season. Everybody was still feeling pretty optimistic there. Um, Justin Fuente's first season. Virginia Tech went to the ACC title game that year. Pitt was um, good enough to beat Clemson in Death Valley that year, and it's just all gone to all, all gone to smithereens. What happened? You know, it's it's interesting because you look. Obviously, Trevor Lawrence is a terrific quarterback. After that, I mean, I think Sam Howell is going to be really good at UNC, but he's only a true freshman at this point. I mean, you look at how bad Virginia Tech has looked. Georgia Tech, I think it's understandable why they're struggling. Miami, I'm not shocked that they're struggling. But there's just so much mediocrity. I'm with you. I like. I, I. I'm very interested in watching Wake Forest. I think Dave Clawson does a really nice job there, and that's a tough place to win. It's a, obviously it's a tiny school. But then you look at some of these other schools. Obviously Louisville's in rebuild mode. FSU is right now trying to get off the ground, but it's struggling. I think that you know we mentioned BC is is seems like they're kind of lost their way a little bit. It's, it's rough, I mean, right now. It's just, there's nothing to get too excited about. I mean, I, I like Bryce Perkins at, at Virginia. I still am skeptical that this team is a top 15 kind of team. Maybe they'll prove me wrong. But, man, it's just like, when did this league get so bad? How did it get, well, it got so bad. I mean, first of all, kind of like the Pac-12's image is, is pretty closely tied at, at any given time to how USC is doing. Florida State has always been that team in the ACC, and it's just been a mess between the end of Jimbo and the start of the Willie Taggart era. Louisville just torpedoed uh, after Lamar Jackson left. Um, Miami, you know, Virginia Tech. I mean, did you? That's see a real Tech puzzler under Justin yeah. Fuente. Fuente yeah. was uh, a very well-regarded hire. I think Bronco, Bronco Mendenhall and him got hired the same year, and those were both considered really good hires. But uh, it's it's gone in the wrong direction for him. You know, you hear a lot of, well, it was the transition from Beamer to Fuente. Well, this is his fourth season now. You know, I don't think you really get to, to play that card anymore. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of coaching changes in the ACC after this season. Pat Narduzzi, you know, that was, uh, uh, you know, that was, that was hardly an embarrassing loss the other day. But his decision and rationale for why he kicked a field goal uh, instead of trying to go for the touchdown there, down 17-10 late in the game near the goal line was bizarre. He's really never gotten over the hump there. So I think between him, um, between him, Adazio, Fuente, and maybe even Taggart, if this thing continues to go south for Florida State, there's a lot of coaches coaching for their job. Yeah, and then look, we had a handful of new coaches at, at programs that certainly at Georgia Tech, Miami, North Carolina, and Louisville. That's a lot of turnover of places that are rebuilding. So so what this means for Clemson specifically is, you know, 
you're not going to have much reason to watch Clemson football for the next two months. It's going to be a lot of very, very lopsided games. And then, but then, you know, it's, let's see, it's September 16th we're recording this. So we're still three and a half months almost until the semifinal game that they'll probably be in. And how are they, how do you get better between now and then when you're playing, you know, you're not getting tested? That's a great question. How do you stay sharp? And do you do good good on good as a lot more than you probably intended to during the week? Obviously, they have a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. But they're going to probably be in a close game in in the playoff. And how will they respond? Now, certainly a lot of these guys, their starting quarterback and their starting running back and a bunch of receivers have been in big games because they, they did it last year. But... Again, a lot of those guys are now in the NFL. I think it's, I think this is a little bit of something where it's like, be careful what you wish for. You want to roll through your schedule, but it's not a bad thing every once in a while to get tested. And I think that that's something that, I I think that's that's a double edged sword. And and I do wonder a little bit about that just because this league is so bad. I'm trying to remember back to to a conference that was so lopsided and I can't think of anything quite quite to this degree. There's actually a pretty relevant precedent and that's the ACC in the 90s when Florida State first got there. They were bad. But the, but uh, they had Miami still. No no they had, a, yes, they had Miami and Florida that they were playing. That's the difference. South Carolina Florida State did right a good now. job of making sure that they got those tests out of conference. You know, they would play they would play a Notre Dame. They would play uh, 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 you know, at least one really well. They play Florida team. State and Miami, though, and they played Florida State and Miami every year. So basically, your typical Florida State season in the '90s was they would play one really good team early, they would play those two rivalry games, and then out of eight ACC games, they would end up having one against Virginia or UNC with Mac Brown, where the team was ranked like 15th, and this was their big ACC game, and they'd win by 30. Uh, that seems to be what this is. Bruce, there was one, I think, crazy... Well, there are a couple crazy endings on Saturday. One was Arizona State, Michigan State, the the ugly, ugly 10-7 to game where it appears Michigan State's gotten the game-tying field goal, but they had 12 men on the field. And then when they re-kick it, they miss, but the Pac-12 had to come out Sunday night and own up that their officiating crew completely missed what should have been a penalty on ASU for the guy who tried to leap over the line of scrimmage. That would have been a 15-yard penalty. Michigan State would have gotten an untimed down. The Florida State-Virginia uh, game, Florida State, bizarre play call down at the end of the game, deciding to do the direct snap to Cam Akers. They don't get it. The clock runs out. But when you would watch the replays, you would see, well, wait a minute. Once Florida State's receiver got the first down, the clock should have stopped at seven seconds, not four seconds. And they might have had time to spike the ball before they ran the last play. And then the, on Friday night in the UNC Wake game, you know, Mac Brown wanted one second back just like in uh, 2009, and this time he should have gotten it. So just a rough week for officiating. And I think it's interesting because this comes at a time when actually leagues are finally trying to be transparent about it. The SEC set up that Twitter account. You know, they get on there during the day, during the games while they're being played and explain things. And in owning up to that ASU Michigan State mistake, the Pac-12 actually put out a three-minute video with their head of officiating explaining what went wrong. And so, I think that's great. But does it? How much does that really matter if at the end of the day, like Michigan State doesn't get to re-kick that field goal? 
Right. To me, that's the one that's the most puzzling. I, somebody that that happened when I was on the field getting ready for our, our broadcast. But when I was explained to me, I was like, "Well, how do you miss that? It's not like it's like it's obvious the guy jumped over. Like I don't I don't understand. That seems so obvious. And the thing that's like underlying to that is just kind of a head scratcher, and it's not the greatest look for the Pac-12 is. The guy who's kind of leading the ship on the on on the leadership of the officiating is Arizona State's own AD Ray Anderson, and so his school is the one that is involved with it. And so, if I'm a Michigan State fan, I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" But at the end of the day, it was like, "Man, if you're Michigan State, you got to find a way to play better than that at home, offensively." But yeah, it's just. I think one of the things that's happened, Stu, is with officiating, because there are so many more eyes on it and so much more technology, and certainly there's it's open to scrutiny because we see these, these uh, videos of it on our Twitter feeds and everything else, and we have podcasts and, and shows and 24-hour sports and everything to just kind of digest everything and dig into it. It only makes it look worse, but... Man, this was one I was like such a head scratcher to get this one wrong, especially as it relates to the to the Arizona State uh, Michigan State game. In fairness, I don't think most of us noticed it in real time either, although it started coming out uh, shortly thereafter. Um, besides the officiating situation, when is Mark D'Antonio going to snap out of this? I feel like every time you doubt him, he turns around and wins ten or eleven games. But this was bad. Uh, this was. You know, a week after they finally showed some life on offense and their their redshirt freshman running back went for almost 200 yards, they got shut out for three-plus quarters and managed one touchdown against Arizona State, who, hey, credit to Herm Edwards. They're playing good defense there. They played good defense there last year, but they're not Clemson or Alabama. Right, and this was a home game. You got you struggled with them last year. I, if, if you're a Michigan State fan, you're like, man, I'm getting tired of this. You know, D'Antonio's done a really, really good job there, certainly. But offensively, it's like they are too one-sided. And to some degree, it feels a little like what previous to Joe Brady, what LSU had, where you look at it and go, it doesn't feel very imaginative. And we're just hanging our hat on we're going to be physical and we're going to be really good on defense. And the offense hopefully won't screw it up. And they're just not getting much out of it. And I don't see it changing much as they're going to face better teams in the Big Ten. Well, color me shocked that keeping all of the same offensive coaches but just changing their titles wasn't the magic um, solution for Michigan State's offense. That, you know, that, that. And, and the other thing is, you know, Brian Lewerke is, I think, a third-year starting quarterback at this point. This is not like, oh, we, we don't have anybody left and we had to break out, you know, a walk-on. They should be better than this. Yeah, and I thought they would be, but clearly they are not. But it, like you said, credit to Arizona State. Herm Edwards has done a, a very nice job there and certainly much better than both of us thought he would have done. Let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. All right. Our first question comes from Matt Montaigne in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Bruce and Stu. Huge fan of the podcast and your writing on The Athletic. Thank you, Matt. How do you explain the competitiveness 
the group of five has shown against the power five. There seems to be way more group of five teams beating power five teams. Just this weekend, we had UCF, Temple, and Air Force beating power five teams, continuing a trend that Wyoming, Georgia State, Boise State, and Memphis, among others, started in week one. I think he's right. I don't have any numbers in front of me, but it does feel like there's been more of those group of five uh, for over power five upsets. And I want to also use this opportunity real quick. UCF just annihilated Stanford the other day. And it didn't particularly matter that, you know, they're now on to like their fourth quarterback since McKenzie Milton got hurt and, and the freshman Dylan Gabriel played fantastic. And look, I think Stanford's in trouble this year. I, I was a little uh, pessimistic on them coming into the season and, and it's actually been worse than I imagined. But, you know, I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to be that guy that's like, well, it was only this team. Like, no, Stanford's one of the winningest teams of the decade. Um, UCF, credit for, for playing, getting them on the schedule and playing them. And, man, it's just like these guys are, aren't, aren't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, we're into year two of Josh Heupel and, and several different quarterbacks, like I said, and they are still playing at a, a, a very high level. Um you got any great theories about this? I would say one of the things that has contributed to this is back when you and I were growing up, there was limited TV coverage beyond just the big powerhouse programs. Now a lot of these teams, I've seen a bunch of Boise State. I've seen Hawaii. I've seen these games are on TV, so you can go somewhere and people will watch you. I think there's an element also of kids saying, you know what, I want to go play. I don't want to go sit behind somebody for three or four years and just be a, a, a too deep guy. So I think that's added to it. And just in terms of what has happened here, UCF, much like USF was, I mean, there's a ton of speed down there. And, and when we look at Miami, Florida State, and even to some degree Florida not being as good as what we have been accustomed to, some of those guys that they probably should have recruited are, are playing in Orlando now. So I think that's that's kind of where it, it goes to. So just to kind of pick up on the point here, well, you'd mentioned your six schools that you thought were clearly better than everybody else. Now last year UCF did get a crack at LSU, and UCF didn't have its their great quarterback Mackenzie Milton, and LSU did not have most of their better players on defense. LSU won the game but that's the only one who's beaten them in a while. What would it take, and is there any remote chance that UCF can get into the playoff? It continues to be, you know, uh, based on what we saw from the committee the last two years, no. Because they're, you know, they're, they're holding very tight to strength of schedule. And so I think for any team, UCF included, to group of five team to do it, the stars have got to align, and I think the closest we saw was Houston a couple years ago. They were able to beat uh, Oklahoma and Louisville, and both those teams turned out to be really good teams that year. Oklahoma won the Big 12, Louisville won 9 or 10 games. You know, if they had gone undefeated, I think maybe they would have had a shot. But based on what I saw from Stanford in both the USC game, actually, I've seen all three of their games. What am I saying? You know, that team's not going to end up 9-3. Uh, they they are going to be playing for no they may end up like six and six yeah they're playing now UCF's going at Pitt this week you know another opportunity to beat a power five team and this one away from home but what's our best case scenario for Pitt at the end of the season 
Right. And even, look, some of the teams, they're going to go to Cincinnati in a couple of weeks. And Cincinnati's pretty good. Cincinnati just got blown off the field at Ohio State. I mean, they don't. USF later in the year, USF has, has got off to a really shaky start. Houston lost to Washington State, and Houston's lost a couple of games. I just, the one thing that they have kind of now is, I mean, they need Temple to just keep winning. But short of that, because that's a road game, I think it's it's unfortunate for them. Like, I agree with you. I mean, we did a Stanford game. I think Stanford is going to struggle to get bowl eligible at this point with the shape their whole line is in, losing their best two players, and just they just look like they're going to really struggle. And I just don't think you're going to get a big push off of them or a road win at Pitt who doesn't look like they're going to be a top 25 team or anywhere near it. So I totally understand why UCF fans would be extremely frustrated because Alabama this year in their non-conference is going to play Duke, New Mexico State, Southern Miss, and Western Carolina. Like UCF scheduled much more ambitiously than that. And then even half of Alabama's SEC schedule, Ole Miss is not very good. Tennessee is not very good. Arkansas is not good. You know, uh, but at some point they're going to play in LSU or Georgia, who's going to be Auburn possibly, who's going to be ranked really high. And if they win those games, they're in. So UCF just doesn't get those opportunities. And I think the committee at the end of the day wants to see how you do against the other best teams in the country. And, and unfortunately, they're not going to have that opportunity. But circling back to his question, you know, I think you're absolutely right about the TV exposure, certainly scholarship limits. And I think what we're seeing is there is parity in college football, but not at the top. And frankly, it's a little bit different even than a decade ago when there did seem like parity was starting to creep all the way up to the top. And you saw Missouri was the number one team in the country at one point. Uh, you know, West Virginia had a little mini run with Rich Rodriguez. There were Wake Forest had a year where they went to the orange. Like there was a little bit of um, uh, shakeup in terms of um, you know not necessarily it was not necessarily all blue bloods. That is not the case right now, and um, I think you know. So I think you've got two different things going on. You've got this small select elite group of programs that are just get whatever recruits they want, have the right coaches in place, have all the money, have a gazillion analysts, um, and it's hard to beat those guys. But the next rung down, you know, if you don't have the right coach, uh, you and, and you can lose to just about anybody because there's a lot of good players out there. This, the not you know, Alabama can only sign 25 a year, and there's a lot of players out there who are really good, and a few of them end up at Georgia State or Temple or or you know any number of these teams that um, have pulled off the upsets. Um. Our next one, Tate and Kansas City, bring, it's about something I brought up a little bit earlier. Stu and Bruce, admittedly, I was not high on the Chris Climate hire back in December for Kansas State. But three games in, sitting at 3-0, two dominating performances and a road victory against an SEC team, he's shown up to the task. Your thoughts on him and the Wildcats thus far? Is he modernizing the program on top of Bill Snyder's foundation? Can they really be a frisky team in the Big 12 this year? Uh, I actually talked to him on Sunday for the column and for the forward pass. Um, first of all, I was always puzzled at the time why that wasn't a more celebrated hire. Like, I won four national championships at North Dakota State. Um, but I also think that, you know, now you've had some distance from it. Those last couple of years with Bill Snyder were not great for Kansas State. It was, uh, there was a lot of drama going on behind the scenes. And I think what you saw on Saturday was a team 
that looks like they're having fun, they're loose, they're aggressive, they make a few turnovers, have a few turnovers, oh well, they'll bounce back. You know, I think that that's the main thing I'm seeing. It's not necessarily the X's and O's, it's just kind of a different um, aura surrounding that program right now. Yeah, and look, Gene Taylor, the AD there, he knows this guy better than anybody because he was his boss at North Dakota State. Not just that he won four national titles, too. He was only there five years as the head coach, and he won four national titles. I was puzzled, like you, that they didn't, uh, that the fan base was kind of nonplussed by this. I thought it was a really good hire. Now, I know that it wasn't a sexy name because it's rare to have a guy who comes from FCS or any place that's not major college football in their eyes by definition of another FBS program and I think that that I don't know did you think you were getting Brent Venables because I just don't know what they were going to be jumping at and I think that was a uh, just a just a guy who was a a ideal fit to come in and put a jolt in a program that really had lost a lot of momentum and I think it's working out really well and I think now everybody's on board and we'll see what they can do I engaged with a couple of K-State fans about it at the time. I was really puzzled, and I think it was really two things. Um, I mean, there was there was just the stigma of, oh, it's an FCS coach. Well, it wasn't just any FCS coach. It was the, the, the coach of the powerhouse FCS program that, and by the way, during his time there, beat Iowa and beat Kansas State, you know, would, would go and, and win these. Uh, did, did I, am I remembering that wrong? They did beat Iowa, right? Yeah. They, they beat, you know, Power 5 teams decent good power five teams um but also i mean remember bill snyder was their coach for 27 of the last 30 years they only had one coaching change in that time and it was ron prince and they and that was a disaster so i think it kind of like when you when you've been waiting for this for years like okay this is finally our opportunity who are we going to get i don't know i think they thought they were going to get a big name or um you know the scott set maybe they thought they were going to have a scott satterfield or a neil brown somebody who was like the hot group of five coach but i don't know i thought it was a great hire uh they've got a a veteran quarterback some really good guys on defense some playmakers Uh, i don't know what the ceiling is necessarily but i think that i'm I'm more excited about kansas state football right now than i have been in a few years it just seemed like they were kind of running on fumes the last couple years of um snyder's tenure barton madison bruce on last week's podcast you expressed continued faith in michigan while not yet being sold on wisconsin with each starting 2-0 and in their matchup this weekend, what has Michigan shown, shown you so far that makes you a believer that Wisconsin hasn't? That's a fair question. Right now I'm playing a hunch. I mean, they haven't shown enough at this point. I mean, they as as good as, as Zach Charbonnet's been, you know, the running backs still are, are inexperienced in stuff like protection and things that Wisconsin could take advantage of. Uh, the thing that gives me pause, quite honestly, with Michigan is Shea Patterson has some, has some ability. I'm not sure if Shea Patterson, even in this system, can be a quarterback who can really tear up a defense. I mean, I just think that there's some things he can do really well, and there's some things that feel like he's a little limited. And that's the thing that has given me a little more pause about my Michigan pick after watching this. Because it's not like he is, he is relatively new to this system. I know he played, he played, did some of this in high school, but not to this degree and made a living off it. That's the part that gives me concern. As, as far as Wisconsin, 
um, you know, I was big on the bandwagon, big on the bandwagon going into last year, and then seeing them, they really struggled, and they had a lot of guys to replace. I mean, I I still think they're a really good team. I'm just not convinced that right now, uh, their quarterback and their they can be a lot more than just Jonathan Taylor, who's terrific. But I just don't, I just don't know. To me, their ceiling to me was a little lower than what I thought Michigan's was. But I can't wait to find out where it stands on Saturday. I mean, this is this is a really interesting matchup to me. Yeah, that's going to be a really good game. By the way, in our second episode of the week that we do now, the Audible Extra exclusively on the Athletic, we'll get it more into that matchup and obviously the big. Uh, uh, Georgia Notre Dame game. I think if you're playing devil's advocate on Wisconsin, I think a lot is being made so far. Jack Cohn being a big upgrade at quarterback. He played obviously as a freshman last year. He seems like he's a lot better, but they've played, they haven't played Michigan's defense. So I think that'll be what I'm focused on this weekend. Um, yeah, there's continued questions on Michigan's offense, but you know, we got to see whether Wisconsin's passing, how much Wisconsin's passing game has really improved. Can they do it? against a really good Michigan defense. Uh, Caleb in Grand Island, Nebraska. Uh, Stuart, I saw a tweet from you stating that you are a voter for the ESPN's top 150 teams list. This was for the um, 150th anniversary. My question is, how was this list compiled and what criteria did you try to utilize when putting together your votes? I noticed a few discrepancies. For example, the 97 Nebraska team is ranked 24th and the 97 Michigan team is ranked 43rd. How did they end up so far apart when there was a lot of debate over who would have won a game between those two teams. Bruce, you voted in this as well, I believe. It was actually, and Ivan Maisel at ESPN has just done a phenomenal job spearheading this whole project. Uh, it was actually a, a very unique voting system. I'd never seen anything like it. Basically, it was a, it was like a random generator that would just generate two, ma- two completely random matchups between 1997 Nebraska and you know 1946 Army. And you would vote for which one you thought was better and then it would pop up a new one. And you could just keep doing this until the end of time. Like there was no, it just kept randomly generating them and you would just keep voting until you your thumbs got tired and you wanted to be done for that time. And you could do it again two days later if you wanted. And I guess, I don't know the, the science behind it, but I, I assume that the larger the sample size, the more uh, random matchups you, you generate, um, that that is maybe a more scientific way to do this than just saying like, Here's an empty ballot, right? Your top 25 teams. But that would explain why that would end up happening because I don't know that you were necessarily, I mean, it was just completely random whether you ever would have even answered the question of 97 Nebraska against 97 Michigan. Yeah, and to me it was a very puzzling system they had. I mean, I love the concept of it, but the only the only analogy I could give is it was like me going to the optometrist, sitting behind that big thing and them going, a or B, B or C. And <laughs> it I was, was like, exactly like that. It was so strange. And like, so you would do this for like best coach, best player. And it'd be like Clark Shaughnessy or Fielding Yost. And after a while, you're clicking through these so much. There were teams on there and there were quote coaches. Honestly, it's not like I'm sitting there Googling their their coaching record. And 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 I'm I've been covering college football for 20 plus years which is not that much longer than you have, but I feel like there's a lot of people who I can't imagine how informed they were on a lot of these other things. So to compare them, it's just like you're just, and after a while it's so mind-numbing because of the way it worked and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) 
Um, you know, they told you you really, could stop whenever you want. It wasn't like they were, you know. I know. This wasn't but supposed after to be a while, some form if of I get, If I get twenty in a row, and I'm like, I've never seen any of these teams. You know, it's like, is Iowa pre-flight better than Minnesota from you know this one? Or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Pre-flight was there there. was no way to avoid recency bias in it, and 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 frankly, I didn't even try to avoid it with the all-time teams because if you're literally like saying this is the matchup, like there's no way a team from 1906 is going to beat. One of Nick Saban's Alabama teams, they would it would be unsafe. They would have to stop the thing after ten minutes. But the, um, the part that I scratch my head at, and ESPN did this maybe a year or two ago, when it's the stuff we can speak authoritatively on is the stuff that's happened when we covered it. I'm sorry, some of these teams in the 2000s wouldn't have touched the Miami 2001 team. Yeah, and to I, see I knew other you were teams go that there. were ranked in front of them was like, uh, I mean, am I wrong? No, I, I was really puzzled why. Of all the recent teams, 2004 USC ended up, I think, the highest of that group. Um, there were some Alabama. There was, you know, if you were going to rank the Nick Saban Alabama National Championship teams, uh, I didn't necessarily think that order was correct. So, yeah. But, look, it was a very large panel of people. Um, I noticed it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of national, current national writers. It was also a lot of, you know, like I think there were SIDs that had votes. Uh, I don't know. Uh I'm not going to criticize it too much. It was just for fun, obviously. Um, I'm looking forward to watching the documentary series, two documentary series that um, that they're running throughout the season. Lastly, we're running out of time. Mike, um, excuse me, Matt Janis. This was an interesting little thing that came up over the weekend. I don't know if you got to see it at all. Uh, the Notre Dame broadcast. Matt Janis from Delaware. Stu and Bruce love the show. Can you please help us get rid of the monstrosity that is the Skycam on NBC for Notre Dame? Dame games. I was blown away with all the negative feedback on social media. It was almost as prevalent as the complaining about ESPN's yellow down and distance box on Monday Night Football, but instead of admitting they screwed up like ESPN did, NBC seems to be doubling down. Did you guys see it, and can you help get on the soapbox to save a great American institution like Notre Dame football from becoming utterly unwatchable? I didn't realize they were going to do... I saw the spring game. They, they did this experimental uh, closer to the action you know, sideline cam for our skybox cam for the spring game. I didn't know they were going to actually do it for real. So, and it wasn't like a an occasional thing here or there. They broadcast the whole game that way and by all accounts plan to do it all season long and Twitter is outraged. I did not see it. I saw the spring game. I did not see that. By the way, I do not like the little yellow graphic that they have, which is so uh, we're so mentally conditioned to seeing it for a flag. I kept thinking that subliminally when they would have that to like tease Monday Night Football is coming up or whatever. I was like, make it orange. Do something that's not yellow where you've already had us thinking that there's a flag there. So, um, I don't know. So the Notre Dame thing, it's jarring to say the least. I don't hate it as much as, as seemingly most of Notre Dame Nation does, but it's it's really jarring because we have watched college football on TV a certain way for 50 years. You know, it has always been the, the press box level camera where you see the whole field. I saw the quotes from the producer saying, you know, we think this is a way to get people closer to the action. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm willing to give it a chance, um, but nobody has any patience for giving things a chance anymore. And this is just such a radical change that if they really do stick to it, you know, like, while I would like to think maybe two, three games in, people would be like, oh, you know what? Now that I'm getting used to it, this is actually pretty cool. I, I think that it'll be like they 
there will be there will be Notre Dame fans rioting in the streets outside NBC's office in New York because, like he's alluding to, like if you're a Notre Dame fan, like this, you wait all year for this, and then they turn on the TV and it's like, what the heck is this? Um, it's gonna be interesting. Let me ask you, Stu. I should know. I should know the answer to this. What does Walters think about it? Uh, good question. There was no bubble screen this week. Because there's not an opinion he has that doesn't get out on Twitter, so I'm yeah. sure it's there. It was an idle week for the uh, for the bubble screen this week. It's coming back next week. I'm sure we will get to hear his opinion about it. I did listen to a little bit of Matt Fortuna and Pete Sampson's uh, Notre Dame podcast, The Shamrock, on the Audible. And Fortuna, Pete was covering the game, so he wasn't watching on TV. Fortuna... You know, I've never heard him get so animated about something. He's a pretty mild-mannered guy. I've never heard him get so animated with his contempt for the NBC broadcast of the game. So that's how I knew it's really bad. Okay, on that note, on the animated Fortuna, we are going to see you next time. We're going to sign off for now again on Thursdays. That's when the Audible Extra drops. That is available exclusively on the Athletics app, and it is a its own separate feed from the regular Audible. So if you... Didn't notice it pop in on Thursday. That's why. Make sure to go into the podcast section on the Athletics app and make sure you're following the Audible Extra. We'll see you guys next time. Hey there, podcast listeners. We are excited to share some big news here at The Athletic. The Athletic has partnered with our friends at Wondery to launch a brand new daily sports show called The Lead that we know you are going to love. I've already listened to the first episode It was great. If you've ever listened to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, what that is for news, this is for sports. The help of the athletics, more than 400 sports writers and editors, co-hosts Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto will bring you sports news up close and personal each weekday morning. You're about to hear a preview of The Lead. Subscribe to The Lead on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode There's also a link in the episode notes that will take you there. And check out theathletic.com slash the lead to read stories featured on the podcast. You can follow sports through sound bites or the full story. From up in the press box or down on the sidelines. What do you want to accomplish this year? Actually, I want to accomplish getting on this team first. This fall, a new daily podcast brings you closer to the sports stories that matter. Stories about players. A guy like Zion just represents that hope of the failures of the past don't matter because we've got this guy now. That's the buzzer. Oh, he knocks it down. Stories about hometowns. You will see hundreds of people wearing number 32 Simpson jerseys uh, in the stands on Sunday afternoons for a Bills home game. And stories about the teams you love. This was the first chance for all those baseball fans to see their guys. From The Athletic, home to the best storytelling in sports. And Wondery, the company behind Sports Wars and Gladiator. I'm Kavitha Davidson. And I'm Anders Kelto. Introducing The Lead. Go, faster, faster. go beyond the box score, five days a week. This isn't a story where you go to some place and interview the athlete and go home. It stays with you. Are you kidding me? The lead premieres September 16th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. The lead, sports up close. Hey, hey, I need some more of that.